Grab your popcorn and silence those cell phones because the show is about to start. Rick and Nick Talk Flicks. Rick Blaine is an award-winning film critic featured on TheBigScreen.net.org and has been highlighted on over 75 unreleased independent film posters in less than 12 different countries. Nick Brown. He's been the high school projectionist for the AV Club for over nine semesters and can be heard nightly at the theater talking loudly in the row behind you about the film being screened. And now, they're joining forces. Ladies and gentlemen, Rick and Nick Talk Flicks. Rick and Nick Talk Flicks. We are back talking movies, talking, well, we'll tell you what we're talking about soon. We're all brought to you by the Bemidji Theater. I'm Dave Brooks. And I'm Joel Hoover, and it's great to be back with you once again. Yeah, with movies and talking about movies, we're going to get a little bit more specific today within the movies themselves. We'll discuss that. This is an idea you had that as soon as you said it, (gasps) ooh, that's good, sizzle, sizzle, percolate, percolate. Although, I think it's going to be challenging to keep it all in a one-hour podcast today, quite honestly. There will be rabbit holes upon rabbit holes upon rabbit holes, and there will probably be some spoilers forthcoming. No question Without doubt. So, if we start talking about a movie that you haven't seen and want to see, oop, you might want to just... Skip ahead a little Skip ahead. Skip ahead. Yeah. So try or do your best to skip ahead. So we will get into that shortly. But first, we've got some current stuff to get into. Um, Obviously, yes, Avatar The Way of Water is making a large pile of money. I think it's exploded past the Scrooge McDuck vault, (laughs) the amount of money that's being made there. Last I heard, it's number four all time. It just passed uh, The the Force Awakens, I think it was. Really? Star Wars. And that's still climbing. So all that's still in flux. On and on. Did you see it? It keeps going on. Still have not gotten to see it yet. Good this movie. is a busy time of year yeah. for me. So. Good movie. Good movie. Saw it. Loved it. Yeah. So that continues to be in the headlines. The big headline movie related right now is that the Oscar nominations are yeah. officially out. The full 10 possible nominees have been filled up for Best Picture. There's that maximum of 10 that you can have. All 10 got filled up. Here they are. Top Gun Maverick. Women Talking. Everything Everywhere. All at Once. The Banshees of... Is it... Inisharin or Inisharin? Yeah, oh yes. And then Triangle of Sadness, The Fablemans, All Quiet on the Western Front, Avatar the Way of Water, Elvis, and Tar. Yeah, there and you know there. Ever since the whole the first you know Black Panther thing, that was so good it should have been up for an Oscar. Now they're starting to put some popular movies in there. The fact that Top Gun is nominated for Best Picture, and I, I think it, not unworthy, but it just I didn't plan on that. It was it, yeah. Okay. It's cool. They can't I like all, seeing it there. They can't all be Jane Austen. You know, it's nice to have a couple of popcorn movies that are worth their salt. And I can see why Avatar is in there. It's character-based, and it's more... If you just think it's about blue people, you're not paying attention. And occasionally, popcorn movies do win Best oh, Picture. Yeah. We have seen that, yeah. and it's kind of nice. Yeah. Or they'll win a... You know, you get the Whoopi Goldberg winning Best Actress for Ghost. It was a comedic role. Or Mr. Marissa Tomei, My Cousin Vinny. They were great roles. Just because it's in a comedy doesn't mean it's not worthy. I don't yeah. think you'll get, you know, Lieutenant Frank Drebin winning an Oscar. Leslie Nielsen's awesome, but no, that's not going to do it. So the Oscars are a little over a month away. March 12th is when they'll be taking place. So And already controversial. So here's, we'll talk about this real quick before we delve into our topic of yeah. the day. So there's controversy now that they, maybe some people got nominated for whatever category that they shouldn't have been announced. There's an internal investigation on how we nominate because maybe the lobbyists pushed a little too. Look, 
If, especially, I could imagine if you live in L.A., you just get bombarded when it comes time for nomination season. Everything gets thrown at you to nominate somebody. So the, I have to look it up because that's the whole point. This person no one's ever heard of in a movie most people didn't see got nominated. So Andrea Risenborough, she was in a movie called Two Leslie. Everyone that has seen this movie is all saying the same thing. It's really good. It really is good. She did a great job in the role. Is she worthy? Why not? So it's almost like if Marissa Tomei, who not only got nominated for My Cousin Vinny, but won for My Cousin Vinny, that's not happening again on my watch, and now it's lining up to happen again on somebody's watch. And now, you know, good is good is good. Is it fine if the chocolate bar is still hard and you could chew it or it melted in your hand? Good is good. What does it matter if you saw it or didn't see it? Besides, most of the Oscars that come out, the movies, I didn't see that one. I got to go see it. Who's doing the complaining that you've been seeing? I They. Capital T. They. They. That's very vague. Well, and you get some big-name people that were supportive of it, like uh, Edward Norton and Gwyneth Paltrow. These aren't nobodies, and they're they're hard-pushing the lobby to get them nominated. Well, that's no exception for Risenborough or anybody else. So at some point, the Academy, they make their decision. And whether you agree with all the decisions or not, that's part of the fun. I hope this one wins. I hope this one doesn't win. That's part of you know the thrill of baseball. Were they safe on first or were they not? They called him out, but clearly he was safe. That's more fun talking about the next day. Same with this. I don't think they should have been nominated. I think they should have been. Here's what I find hilariously ironic about this is that these these Hollywood folks, it sounds like a lot of Hollywood folks were pushing for her to be nominated for this award. Well, it's the same kind of thing as you see from the fans themselves who are like, hey, this was a great popcorn film that a lot of people saw. It should be nominated for some big awards. And then we get a whole bunch of awards that we are not familiar with that do actually get nominated instead. You have that dichotomy between who has the power to be able to influence these things and who doesn't. You know, it's, there's something about the whole Martin Scorsese, these are movies and this is cinema. A lot of times the cinema movies don't go gangbusters at the box office. These are finely crafted pieces of mahogany uh, Amish furniture, to give you a, a metaphor. Not a lot of people are feeling like going for Amish movies, if that's another metaphor. Uh, but they're going to go for the popcorn alien exploding fighter jet movie. So, yeah, Top Gun nominated for Best Picture. Tom Cruise was not, but uh, certainly would be happy as one of the producers for that. But it's, I, I don't know. I, I still go with the whole good is good is good, and you're not going to know everything. And besides, most of the movies that come out and get nominated, a lot of them, I don't, I don't know this movie. I don't know, I know the actor, but I don't know the role. I, so now you go and you see them. A lot of them come back into some sort of a limited re-release so you can actually see them because they came and went quietly. But now that there's a spotlight on them, ooh, I got to go check this out. Maybe it's been out long enough that now it's streaming or it's on video or whatever. Or maybe it does get a re-release in theaters, so or a wider release, and not just New York and L.A., because that's where the critics are. But, you know, sometimes these can make great movies. But then, of course, you find the movie that's the darling of the moment. Like, go back to the late 90s. Remember The English Patient? One Best Picture. Oh, man. Anybody seen The English Patient oh, since then? Gosh. It was a darling at the time, and it's just kind of gone away. It had its short lifespan, and it's gone. While other movies like Shawshank weren't, you know, Shaw who, what? It bombed at the box office. It was nowhere to be seen at the Oscars. And when you find that out now, what? It didn't get nominated. You didn't get Morgan Freeman. What? 
come on. You just it just is what it is. And good for Andrea. Good for um, good for the movies that you didn't hear of that got nominated. Time is going to ultimately make the decider, and it also makes it more fun. Which movie won an Oscar that was overly hyped that probably won over something that should have won in its place? That's kind of the fun of it. If it's all paint by numbers, what's the fun? Besides, yeah. what are we ultimately doing here? We're judging art. Come on. Which is kind of what you and I are doing today. We're talking this art. Segment. We're yeah. talking art. We are talking art because we are talking about scenes. That's right. Have you seen it? Hopefully you have. I was spelling that with an S-C-E-E-N-Z. Wait, what? <laughs> anyway, boy, that, that that was going so well there and then it wasn't. All right, scenes. Scenes, uh, scenes can sometimes stick in the mind more than just the movie on the whole. That that's sort of how it is. Scenes play a pivotal role in how you feel about a movie. Sometimes you can have a scene that you look back on and you go, "That ruined the movie for me." Sometimes you have scenes where you look back on it and you go, "That took this movie from good to great." That took it from, I, I don't know how I was feeling about it to the time to, wow. That just completely brought the house down in that moment. A- am I taking it too far with that description there, Dave? Or do, do no. scenes have that kind of power? Do no, you feel? that's that's the you know, some of those center point tent pole. This is the movie scenes. That that's what makes or breaks the movie. This is what the movie maybe not building toward the whole movie because that's the climax of the movie. But there might be say a huge action sequence in the middle, and that's the one everybody remembers. You forget about all the minor scenes, but that big thing in the middle, wow, or the big reveal, or the big twist, or the whatever. The scenes can make a break. You know me; I like to watch Turner Classic movies a lot. So TCM just this past month was doing a special feature on Wednesday nights, actually, where they were doing movies featuring car chase scenes. Ooh. Centering around, actually, a topic that, we, that we've had. Bullet was one of okay. them, yes. Some of the movies were car chases throughout the course of the movie, like Smokey and the Bandit. Yeah. So, the whole movie's a car chase, really, but It okay. is, yeah, that's that was the point. Yeah, and then you've got some movies that featured a great car chase within it, like Bullet, like The French Connection. There were other ones like that. You can have... Like they they took a concept that sometimes is just a scene and they made it into a month long feature that they had on a special night within the course of the month. That's the kind of power that that scenes have sometimes. I mean, we did an episode talking about great car chases as well. They're they're again focusing on a specific scene and they they have power to sometimes make a movie or make a movie stand out in a way that maybe otherwise it wouldn't have when you have a certain kind of scene. Think about think about slapstick movies for example or where they're building toward maybe this this manic madcap scene that takes place at this one particular point in the movie and then sometimes that might be the most memorable part of it. Like the movie The Great Race, speaking of car chase, is a quote-unquote car chase. Um, the Great Race was this funny 60s movie with Jack Lemmon and Tony Curtis All-star and, cast. and Natalie Wood. Right. And they're they're going on this this automobile race around the world. And it builds to, to this climactic point at this late stage of the race where they are in this foreign country. And there there's a case of mistaken identity on who's the king and who's the knight. It's got a prisoner of Zenda kind of feel to it. And then it leads to this enormous scene, this enormously funny scene where they are throwing cake 
all over the place uh, during this celebration in and cake is just flying around the room and somehow Tony Curtis is not getting hit with it in the midst of it. He's too much of a beautiful man. You can't cover him up. Well, that they play into that actually with his character in the movie and and there's just there there's cake flying all over the place and you kind of remember that scene maybe as much as anything else in the movie because there's an inordinate amount of cake that has just been tossed all over the place and is now on everybody in the room and eventually Tony Curtis too but you've got Natalie Wood just completely covered in cake Jack Lemon's covered in cake everybody in there it's it's hilarious and yet it, it stands out then too no wonder he couldn't hear Walter Matthau huh what pots who <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> still cake in the ear that's right yeah I I totally get you and some of those a great example of some great scenes and you don't even realize it and sometimes all you have is a good scene and maybe another scene and now you're just really stretching to find a way to connect those scenes well that's good enough that's a movie but some of those like you talk about Inception, what an amazing movie, but some of those scenes that really stand out, you don't really realize how well-threaded those big pieces are. And they're important when you're coming up with the construction of how a movie is going to be built. Sometimes it's hard to make scenes stand out in a movie that that's full of spectacular visuals. But I remember with Inception, I think the two parts of that movie that, that helped make it stand out, that made you go, this is different, was first when... They're actually both in the same kind of sequence where Leonardo DiCaprio's character, he's talk, so Dom and, um, and Ariadne are talking about creating a dream. Mm-hmm. And you see, the, you see the city starting to fold in over itself where you realize the dream is taking place. And, and you see it fold up like that. And buildings are on top of buildings at that point. And then at another point, too, where they're sitting there in the square. And then all of a sudden, fruit starts exploding out around them. Everything around them starts exploding to life. Actually, that was just prior to when the building got folded up over. Those two scenes make you go, all right, we've got something that's going to be visually spectacular that's going to take place in this movie. And you get it in a sequence of scenes there. That helps set the stage for other mind-blowing visual scenes to come. I'll even give uh, you dig a little deeper here, where you've got such a, in that movie alone, Inception. It's a dream within a dream within a dream within a dream, and they're happening simultaneously. And when they start cutting in between each of these completely related yet unrelated sequences, and the way you're able to keep the audience, most of the audience anyway realizing, okay, this is this part, this is the way they're shot, the way that the lighting was, the way the tone was, and they're distinctly different. And the the speed. They're so distinctly put together that while they're very separate, they're very much together and trying to let the audience come along with the ride without getting lost. That is an excellent execution of good scenes, good structure, way to string it together and not lose the audience in the process. Actually, you made me think about it in a way that I hadn't before with those sequences because there's one point where the van is falling in the into the river and that that takes place for a long time during the course of when they are in the dreams. And you've got that part. Then you have you have Joseph Gordon-Levitt and his character who is... Well, they're on the airplane first and foremost. Well, first so, and foremost yeah. on the airplane, so that's going on. But that's kind of been left behind long yep. since. But you have this slow motion of the van falling into the river and everybody going in slow-mo there. Joseph the Gordon-Levitt is, is suspended in midair in his own dream sequence where everyone's tied up there. 
He's in midair, so that makes that one different. And speaking of visually spectacular, all that went on there with that fight where it's a constantly moving and tilting world, like dream world there. And then you have the you have that compound that they're attacking that has its own different look and frame and and visual that helps to be able to separate all of them within that that span of time. That's really I, I never thought about it like that, Dave, but that's well said about how they were able to to layer those different worlds within that particular movie and have different types of scenes within each one. And I'll go even one deeper. The one the 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 zero gravity hotel fight. The way that, that was one that could lose you. I mean, not only was it a, a dream within a dream within a dream, I forget what level that was, and then there was still one more to go. That one, the way they filmed it, that could have been way overdone in CGI, and yeah, I'm losing this one because it just doesn't look real. But the way they filmed it on a gimbal where generally the guys that were on wires, they'd put the gimbal not on its side, they'd film it straight up and down so the wires that they're on are being concealed by the actors themselves because they're hanging from them as you're looking at their back, for example, as they're running down the hallway away from you. So there was not one effect shot that wasn't already live in camera because the camera's rotating, the set's rotating, and it's hanging. So you were, you were, your eye was tricked in a way that it was absolutely believable. So as if it's that, the deeper you go into the dream, the easier it is to knock yourself out of the dream. That would have been the one cinematically that could have done it. Perfection. Yeah, exactly. Perfection. Yeah, well, un- unintendedly, we hit up our first scene right there, or scenes all strung together. I've got one that isn't necessarily a scene, but wow, does it set the stage. It's got to be one of the best opening sequences of all time. That was one of the categories that I wrote down okay. coming in. I had a few categories written down of scenes that that are worth exploring. So opening sequences, let's hear it. Well, it's it's... You know, you can go like James Bond, we'll call it the pre-adventure before the title sequence, but I got to go Vertigo. And I'm not talking about the chase on the rooftop. I mean the opening credit sequence where it's all these spirographs and eyeballs and it's just it's just offsetting, in a, but in a way that it pulls you in. You know you're into something. And they didn't make movies like that. The closest you could find at that point was maybe a Bond movie. But this movie came out in the 50s before the first Bond movie came out. So in a way, Bond probably, I got to think, got its inception for those ideas from Vertigo. And you don't know anything about the movie. It's about Vertigo, I think. I'm not sure what Vertigo is, but all of a sudden you're offset, you're off balance, you're kind of creeped out, weirded out, don't know what to think. And then the movie gets going, and that's kind of what the whole movie's about in a lot of ways. That set the scene without one word, without anything else, and almost to the point that it's almost as memorable as any scene in the movie, just the sequence. So is it technically a scene? I mean, well, any chunk of time in a movie's got to be a scene, but there's not one person, not one word of dialogue. It's just eyeballs and spinny lines. But wow, does it say volumes. Yeah, title sequence that that spoke to what kind of movie you were going to have as far as the the way that it was going to work on your mind in that way. You yeah. wonder what direct influence that was a Hitchcock movie, but did Hitchcock design the sequence for the title sequence, or did he just hand it off to somebody? Give me something kooky. That wasn't very commonplace at that point, but it started to become that way. I mean, you see that in a in a movie like Charade. You see that with the title sequence there. I mean, Hitchcock really started to lean into that with some of his movies that followed with doing different things with the title sequence and making it speak to the tenor of the movie as well because title sequences weren't really all that interesting or original at that point. It was just maybe put something in the background, have some dramatic music that that set the tone. But 
then the sequence of the titles themselves became part of that and set that up. It's kind of funny that nowadays movies generally don't have openings like at all. You might not even see the title of the movie until the end of the movie. It's just, here we go. Right. Think of an Avengers movie. There, I don't think you see the title Avengers anywhere till the end, I think. Well, you see it really quick. Yeah. Really quick after that opening bit, and then you see it for a quick second, and then it's gone. Yeah. Title sequences used to be kind of kind of artistic. Thomas Crown Affair in the 1960s, same kind of thing. It showed the, the sort of filming that Norman Jewison had and the, way, the sort of editing, too, with multiple scenes going on at once, multiple camera shots going on at once in one visual. So opening sequences set the tone for the movie in such a huge way, don't they? I mean, it, it's cool to see the spectacular way that it's done sometimes, too. That's part of what helps make the Dark Knight trilogy stand out as well. You have, especially in The Dark Knight and The Dark Knight Rises, you have two incredibly impressive opening sequences that actually both were shown briefly in advance of the movie in IMAX to get a, to get to wet the appetite of what was to come. So the the bank heist that you have where the Joker and his crew go and they well the Joker sets it up so that his crew will turn on each other and then he's the only one leaving at the end of it and they rob the mob bank sets the stage incredibly dramatically for what was to follow with the Dark Knight with the precision of how they did all of that. And then The Dark Knight Rises, an incredible visual of the plane heist that takes place with Bane and his crew doing all of that in midair. And the way that they filmed it was was truly spectacular. That was, that was epic, the way that they were able to film all of that in flight like they did. And largely in camera. I don't know if there's yeah. – I'd have to look it up if there was any CGI in that shot at all. But again, even with the fuselage of the plane, if they're on wires, and clearly they were – they're, you're not seeing them, whether they were painted out or they were just concealed, same way they did the hallway fight. But in opening scene, movies so often in the past have, have gone on, you know, the, the typical storytelling nature of you're building, building, building to your dramatic climax, and then there's the resolution, like, like storytelling goes, you know, that you have in books and such, and same with TV shows. I, I love when movies disrupt the conventional wisdom of that with the scenes that they use to open the movie like those did where you have an extremely exciting opening scene that cat that grabs your attention right away the bond movies have done that for a long time and they've built on that it used to be something kind of fun bond finishing his previous adventure nowadays they're setting it up for this is what's happening for the rest of the movie like you see that in skyfall with that chase and the way that that is setting the tone for Bond's story and for the greater story on the whole that's going on within that movie. And then you you can be very powerful with it, too. I mean, look at the opening scene of Saving Private Ryan. Oh. And the way that oh. it so powerfully hits you and goes from the present day to the past. And you don't know why you, you are seeing this man who is staggering to this, this particular gravestone. In, in the midst of this cemetery, and then you pick it up on the beaches of Normandy on D-Day with a sequence that is unforgettable in, in war movies it in is particular. The, it is the most intense 20-minute sequence of any movie, any genre I have ever seen in any movie. If that was over and that was and it. And I think it's because it comes at the beginning, right? And and you, you go to a very familiar place that you're familiar with in history, and yet 
it grabs you visually and and shakes you so much more than that you know world war ii for a long time has always been romanticized it's the last of the great generation it was the last of the great wars oh it was so civilized i mean obviously it wasn't but this was not pulling punches there is nothing nothing romantic about saving private ryan even the color palette is washed out intentionally so to give it more of a bleak look anybody that thought world war ii all oh, the good old days of the john wayne movies this ain't no john wayne movie this is almost as true life of a on the beaches documentary style as you're going to get to and it was no picnic i mean that whole wow wow but I it mean, all starts with that opening scene that opening scene changes that tone so greatly from what you have come to know for war movies in the past or what you've seen in war movies in the past whether it's been um, you know, there there were ones that kind of either romanticized it or glorified it in oh, some yeah. ways, Dave. I mean, movies had done that with war movies. Or you had the ones that were anti-war that had gone a different way with it and had been more more callous. This was just straight up. It, it was... War it, as it hell. Was rea- it was reality, and it wasn't reality. It, it wasn't proving a point like some of those anti-war movies that had preceded it. This was down to the reality bare bones right here. Yeah. You know, I'm going to take a back step here and go back to The Dark Knight. Uh, Talk about a really good scene to really introduce a character. Now, the Joker technically gets his introduction in that first sequence of the bank robbery, but really he gets a second introductory scene. The mob are having a meeting about, well, what are we going to do? And out comes this guy. And immediately, his first introduction is to do a magic trick. You're like, okay, well, this could be interesting. We can watch a pencil disappear, and he puts his pencil down. And meanwhile, the main mob guy sends one of the henchmen, go kill this guy. And he goes over to the Joker, and the Joker grabs his head, slams the pencil right through his eye. The pencil's gone. It's disappeared. Not only is it, A, funny for the Joker, but, B, that's sadistic, which is the Joker character. It serves two purposes, but boom. And from that moment on, this is not... Jack Nicholson's Joker. It's certainly certainly not Cesar Romero. It's certainly not anything of any type of Joker you've ever seen before, pre-Jared Leto. This is a whole other thing. This is, and it was funny and entertaining at the same time, and I remember the whole theater, as soon as the scene was over, wow, that was a, and the whole scene is what, maybe 90 seconds, two minutes, that's it. But wow, it was not, there was no fat to trim. Really quick, um, it, it stays with the topic, so it, it, it certainly fits. Take me into when you've been in theaters. What are some scenes that have stood out that have gotten that a, a reaction from the crowd, whether it was a oh, or it was a laughter kind of one? What are some that come to mind for you, Dave, that got that grabbed the audience's attention when you went and saw a movie in theaters? I can remember cameos of people that you didn't know were in the movie showing up, and those were always fun treats. Like I, Matt Damon in Interstellar definitely comes to mind for me in that way. That was one of them, but it was one of those where it was, is that Matt Damon? Is that Matt Damon? But the moments were, oh, like, and not that it's the greatest example, but for the audience response it is, is when you get to the end of the uh, 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 Kevin Costner Robin Hood movie and King Richard shows up, and it's Sean Connery. You know, Everyone knows Sean Connery. Even just the voice is enough. And then he gets off the horse and he looks. He's got that good, stern, almost Bond look. And the whole theater is like, oh, oh. Nobody. Was that uncredited? Yes, it was. Yes. Okay. Nobody knew he was cool. in it. He's only in it for the last sixty seconds as the king there to go to the wedding, and you're not sure what his intentions are. And then you realize, oh, that's right, they're cousins. Oh, hey, well, that's good. And it's Sean Connery. 
And not only that, if you're a big movie fan, just a few years before that, The Untouchables, you've got him and Kevin Costner together as a pretty good duo. They get taken apart from one another, but now they're kind of back together in a weird way. So it was just a lot of different things. Now, that's not maybe the best example of one of those scenes. That's a good one, But though. the audience response, everybody to a man, woman, and child was all, whoa, that was pretty good. Uh, you have to give me a minute to think about one of those scenes that just got everybody. Well, I, I've got one that clearly comes to mind for me. So a few years ago, I went and I saw one of the earliest showings of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Okay. And I went with a few friends of mine who I figured would probably enjoy getting to check out the movie, too. And I, I remember when, when you've got um, Manson's crew going up the street there you feel such a foreboding feeling there because you you know the story coming in. I mean, most people did know the story coming in of all that had happened with the Manson murders. And so you're feeling your stomach twisting in knots going, oh, no, this just, this just feels so creepy now. But it, it's juxtaposed against what's going on with, with Rick Dalton and Cliff Booth hanging out and buddying it up next door. And then lo and behold, the Manson crew come into the house and you go, Wrong house. Oh, man. We're about to get a Tarantino moment here where it's history being changed a little bit. And the way that scene played out, it just went from one ridiculous moment to another to another with the, the violent mashing of, of this Manson crew that was going on by Cliff Booth. And the the theater is erupting in laughter more and more with each maniacal moment that's going on there. And then when the one the one member of that crew is in the pool after she's been tossed in there, and you see um, the flamethrower. Rick, Rick Dalton, who had been in his pool, he goes to his garage, and you see him come out with the flamethrower, which actually no. had been shown briefly earlier in the movie, but you have to look closely for it. And he comes out, and he's holding it out like he's in the 14 Fists of McCluskey. The whole theater was just crying no, no, laughing. No. Everybody was going absolutely <laughs> nuts. And my friends and I were just were howling because we knew what was about to happen and it was just so funny you know my response in watching that particular scene was not completely unrelated to that but it was different because you know kind of like inglorious bastards where hitler doesn't die in a movie theater they guess been set on fire and shot up by some american squad that didn't happen so now all of a sudden you see the manson crew getting ready to go and they go to the wrong house i'm still okay hang on hang on I'm not anticipating where it's going to go because with Tarantino, you don't necessarily know. Right. But looking back on it, I probably should have known. I'm hold on now. Maybe this is some you know one of those annals of history. They're going to do this, and then they're going to go to the Manson house. So hang on. But then when it starts to really go, it really starts to go, and now it's going over the top. Now you know you're having an inglorious bastards moment where history isn't the history that you know. We're in some parallel universe, and not only does it go sideways, it really goes sideways, and it becomes a, a roller coaster thrill ride, which the whole movie has not been up to this point. This is the most Tarantino-esque moment of the entire movie. But, uh, yeah, I have an answer to your question about what was one of those where the whole theater was just like, oh, I don't know if you've seen, but the 2001, 2002, somewhere in there, the uh, the Count of Monte Cristo, Jim Caviezel. Oh, that's one of my favorite movies. I love that one. If you've read the book, and it's a long book, the book and the movie, 
Oh, how do I put this? They're not necessarily faithful to one another. Correct. Because the book... The movie's not exactly faithful to the book. Yeah, okay, yeah. that's a good way to put it. The movie, I, we did get spoilers here. So the, the movie is about a guy that gets wronged. He comes into a lot of money. Now he's going to use that to enact revenge so that the people around him are going to suffer like he suffered. But the movie has more of a happy ending, particularly where he gets his revenges and including his, you know, his wife to be who gets taken from him. But he in the book looks at her as someone who wronged him. And she is also somebody that receives revenge, but not in the movie. It's done differently. Right. But the way that the revenges are carried out, one of them in particular, there's uh, I forget the character's name, but he was basically the law enforcement guy that kind of set him up in the first place. And he finally yes. gets him and you finally realize everywhere this guy turns You've got, um, oh, I'm forgetting all the characters' names, but Jim Caviezel's character, the Count of Monte Cristo himself, he has cut off every single exit mentally, physically, emotionally, till this guy finds himself in the back of a squad car, or one of the time with a horse drawn, and sitting there gently as a pistol. And he grabs the pistol with, with only one shot. It's not to escape. It's a gentleman's way out. And he decides to take the way out, click. It's empty, and all of a sudden the count pops up right behind him. You didn't think I'd make it that easy, did you? And off he goes, and the whole theater's yes. like, oh, burn, you're going away. That was one of those moments where it's a good scene, and it's it might be the first revenge. Well, the timing is so great in that scene, too, because oh, it's yeah. right after the click of the pistol from the magistrate there, and he, he realizes, oh, I can't. And then right in that moment, the count pops up there in the window in the back of the carriage, and he says that. Yeah, it's, it's, it's just, not a slow burn. Uh, it is set up, beat, 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 kaboom. And it's and Martin Campbell directed it. He did a couple Bond movies, so he knows how to do it. And, God, he did it good. Super stylish movie. Oh, yeah. yeah the music, the the setting. It's, it is an old-school movie. And yes. So nice. It, it's such a great movie. It's not yeah. faithful. It, it is to a point faithful to the book, but then it takes its own turns. And I'm not, it's, there's, there are times where the book and the movie can take a split and it's okay. This is one of those. It's absolutely, absolutely faithful to the spirit of the book, but every little nuance and thread, not so much, but I'm going to argue that it's better for it. And a scene like that is a good reason why. Yeah, I agree. It was, it was a nice touch. And just on the whole, it's set up to make it it, it just set up really well the entire movie did so that's that's a good one that's a good one because part of the fun of it with these movies is in the theater the reactions like that and what kind of moments get reactions to like I, I think of when when Hulk is body slamming Loki in the first Avengers movie at the end yeah when he <laughs> when when he uh, Loki is just given it to him with all these things that he's saying he's using his words his words are his strength and then there's hulk who just picks him up and slam 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 the whole audience was just dying and, and just going crazy laughing because it was so funny and and just the visual of it all was was hysterical i that's when you know you've got a great scene is is when because audiences these days it used to be in back in the day like people would applaud at the end of the movie and do that and yeah that's it's kind of trite and silly and the one progressive commercial made fun of that with those those parents who go and watch the movie um in person and they clap at the end it's like nobody's here you don't have to clap well it is fun when you get reactions like that in the middle of the movie that says you've got a scene yeah yeah 
One of my favorite movies, we've touched base on it before, but I've never really talked in depth about it other than to say it's one of my favorite underappreciated movies is Sneakers. Came out in the early 90s. It's an all-star cast. Robert Redford is in it. Uh, River Phoenix shortly before he died. Dan Aykroyd, Sidney Poitier, Ben Kingsley. Um, it's a movie that is, uh, it's, a, it's hard to define what it is. It's almost a dramedy thriller if that makes any sense. And it's much more of a comedy than you think it is. Do not go on YouTube and watch the trailer because it is. it doesn't know what it's trying to be. It's trying to make it look like a Bond movie, and it's not. So the trailer is bad, and it doesn't represent the movie at all. But So it's a thriller, and it's tense, but it's got its moments where it really doesn't take itself seriously. So at the end, you've got this long sequence where, long story short, uh, Robert Redford and his crew are breaking into this building. And now they got to get out of this building, and the building knows they're there, and the building is really trying to, you know, close up everything and get them out. Everybody's getting captured by security except for this one guy who's blind. He's very, very smart, played by David Strathern, and he's uh, Whistler is his name. Whistler, you got to do it. You got to do what? You got to drive. Drive what? And he's talking him through how to drive a car. The man's blind. But the the movie is you need a you need a breath of something funny in the midst of all this tension to kind of put the cap around this tension. And so here's this sequence that's done for laughs, but it doesn't take away at all from anything that's going on. And everybody in the movie theater that's sitting there just they're gnashing their teeth and they're just gripping their hands. Now everybody's just <laughs> popcorn's falling on the floor, but it's not taking anything away because they're not over with yet. You just need a breath. It's like Jaws, as terrifying as it is, you need those moments where you get Quint and Hooper that are bickering back and forth and it makes it kind of funny and then out of nowhere, <gasps> the shark. It's that kind of thing, but it's just that moment of levity that just, for me, it's such a scene that just, it's the sweet to go with the the salty. It just, it makes it work. And it's just a short little scene. Boy, does it make it good. Along these lines, I want to ask another question that's specific, uh, that focuses on specific scenes. Can you think of ones that come to mind where maybe you didn't necessarily laugh, but maybe it was a scene that really made you smile, that just you cannot help but smile through it. I'll let you think about it because okay. I've got an answer and it's a really easy one for me because every time I look up this scene, I just cannot help but smile watching it. And that is the parade in Ferris Bueller's day off. <laughs> you just can't help but smile. You, It feels like you are watching humanity at its best and at its most, most delightful when you're watching that. You're watching people of all walks of life coming together. They even filmed a guy who wasn't necessarily in the scene but was just kind of watching them filming it, this construction worker who's dancing them up on on, on this scaffolding, and they put it in the movie. And in the middle of it, you've got Matthew Broderick's Ferris, who's just having the time of his life singing Twist and Shout for everybody or lip-syncing Twist and Shout for everybody in the midst of it all. Everyone's dancing and just having a great time. It's... Just three minutes of pure fun, and and I dare you to watch that and not have a smile on your face at the end of it because it's just, it, it's just great. It's just one of those that that leaves a smile on your face at the end. You know, one of them that gets me, and it's funny that it's music ties in. Whether you've got him singing or lip syncing with the Beatles on the on the float in uh, downtown Chicago and Ferris Bueller. 
I just I kept finding myself bouncing from one scene to another, and then it occurred to me that they were all musical montages. And it, you could pick your favorite movie of what it is, whether it's Forrest Gump running and it's not a comedy. Music is often involved, isn't yeah, it? Or, uh, yeah, I mean, you can think about some of the Ghostbusters where you get the, you know, it's the first time that, you know, Ray Parker Jr. is singing in the movie, and it's going from little micro cut scene to cut scene to cut scene of the Ghostbusters doing their thing, and you're just sitting there watching. It's just complacent and smile-ish. Is, like, that's not a real word, but... Uh, uh, it's it's so smileable. You can't help but just kind of have a smile on your face and watch. Yeah, you go, guys. Oh, yeah, that's good. Oh, that's so good. It, it music montages, whether they're comedies or and especially comedies, you don't get those in a lot of you know thriller movies. I think that makes me think of Singing in the Rain when when they're doing the the make them the make them laugh one, as well as when um, when the trio is is dancing and singing too. Um, Oh, which one was that one where they were where they were dancing and singing? Um, where, where all three of them are together there too. It's yeah, you've got you've got sequences like that. Song and dance routines have a way of being able to do that as well. Yeah. And some of those classic musicals, yeah, some of some of those sequences end, and you're just like, yeah, that there, that hit that hit the spot. My best friend's wedding. The I say a little prayer for you sing along scene. That's that's a good one. One of my favorite categories of scenes, and I don't know how to describe it better than just calling it the tingle moment. And where Ooh, where yeah. something happens and it's just <gasps> and not only does it take chills. your breath away, you will literally feel the chills. And I will never forget it was the first movie I ever saw that did it. So clearly it's a kid's movie, but it had a tingle moment for a kid. And funny enough, it was The Great Muppet Caper. And if you've ever seen that one, it's I think it was the second Muppet movie. But it's basically, there's jewels that are stolen. Miss Piggy is set up by it, and she's put into jail. While the rest of the Muppets go to find the real bad guys, and they're going to get in trouble. Miss Piggy is now broken out of jail, and now she's on a motorcycle to save them. And so now you get to the point where they're all battling in this art museum, and this it's all the plan is going bad, and the bad guys are going to win until all of a sudden, dun, 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 smash through the window. Here comes Miss Piggy, which was funny when you pause it now because. Because clearly, it's a real motorcycle. It's some stunt person wearing a Miss Piggy outfit, basically, <laughs> is what it is. But that's not what the kid and me saw. The kid watched <laughs> Miss Piggy swing in like Indiana Jones. And I just <sighs> felt the tingles come in as he, she's swooping in and then goes and ninja kicks, basically, every of the bad guys. Led by Charles Grodin, by the way, because this is a Muppet movie, after all. But it was one of those moments where, as a kid... My hero, it was Miss Piggy, just zoomed in on a motorcycle. And I loved every tingle moment I've seen since then, but that was the first one. There are there are a few, actually, four of them that come to mind for me for tingle scenes. I Those those are so exciting, where you feel the chills when you're watching it. <laughs> oh. I remember in, in the theater watching when Bruce Wayne jumps the gap in The Dark Knight Rises when he's climbing the pit and the music hits like it does. That feeling was incredible and speaking of an audience reaction the whole theater erupted in clapping and cheering and i was at a midnight showing so you've got batman diehards who are there to watch my friends are all along with me too from college we all were going like you, the guys are cheering on on the the floor of that prison there we're all cheering in the theater and the chills i felt i was like oh man this is so cool and then same way, but in a very emotional sense, in Dunkirk, when the boats arrive and they first see them and Kenneth Branagh's character puts the binoculars down and, he, and his, his lieutenant says, what do you see? And he says, 
home. And then there they are. The boats come in and the music hits. It was it was an emotional scene, honestly, watching that take place. And then the way the music was and all oh, the chills I had. And were don't forget the amazing. other point. This isn't some armada of naval ships. This there was that too. These are like Stephen Johnson and his yacht boat, civilian and little, boats, civilian yes. boats. Some guy in like a rowboat, essentially, who crossed the channel. Yeah, that's who it is. From a competitive standpoint, uh, one in a sports movie that hits me. That actually, a couple in a sports movie that hit me that way. When Eric Little is rounding the bend in the final race in Chariots of Fire, oh, and you yeah. hear his voice speaking, where he says, "I believe God made me for a pur- purpose, but He also made me fast." And when I run, I feel his pleasure. And the music kicks in again at that point of some music. Um, same in Hoosiers when Jimmy Chitwood hits the last shot at the very end after he says, I'll make it. There's That's a chill-inducing moment. But the biggest one for me is when Yoda raises the X-Wing in The Empire Strikes Back. That whole scene when he is speaking to Luke and the things that he shares there. And the way that you can apply those really to life, too. Some lessons there. And then the way he raises the X-Wing, that scene is one of my all-time favorites in any movie I've ever watched because of the lessons that come from it, the music that's in it, and that whole sequence, so dramatic. It's just part of that spellbinding quality of that movie that goes beyond just visuals and the, the space opera carrying on. It, there is a mystique about that movie, that and that scene feeds it so well. Absolutely. I'll give you a sports one for me. I mean, we all know what happens in the Miracle on Ice, but when you saw the Kurt Russell, what, 2005? Oh, I think that came out, 2005? Kurt Russell, the mi- Miracle. And the game is now happening. I saw that in the theater, and it was like being at a, a hockey game. People are cheering with every goal as if it's really happening. Yeah, You know what's going to happen. Most people did that were there. But it was still, you're rooting, and when the Soviets get the puck and they're driving, no, no, you know what's coming. Yeah. Same thing with Apollo 13. You know what's going to ultimately happen, and Ron Howard can spin a yarn, boy. He knows how to make it happen. And all these little mini micro crises and the big one, of course, and now it's finally, well, this is either we're going to make it or they won't make it, and they enter the atmosphere, and here comes that moment. Man, is that tense. And what scenes were those? But you know what's coming, but wow, do they know how to make that scene work. And just about every single scene, the most mindless as far as you know, thrills, but it starts to spell out the exposition in a way that works. And every scene in that movie, I think, is one of those scenes. What about dialogue-focused scenes? Because sometimes there are ones where there's just dialogue where it, it either hits you in a whoa or yeah. it hits you in a really poignant way, too. I wrote down Goodwill Hunting when they've had that first meeting and it goes horribly. The therapist, you mean, with yeah. Robin Williams. Okay. Robin Will- and Robin Williams, oh, you see him just thinking and thinking and thinking about it with that first meeting that he has with Will, with Matt Damon's character. And they go back. You think it, maybe this isn't going to work out, but they go back and they, they meet again. He's like, come on, Will, let's go for a walk. And then they go down by the river and he talks to him about how he seems to think he knows everything. And yet he doesn't he doesn't know anything that that scene. It comes. That's not even at the midway point in the movie. I don't think it's pretty early. I think it's early, early mid first half at some point. But but that scene is such a standout moment because it's a turning. It's the beginning of a turning point for the two of them. And and boy, it's just one person talking pretty much the whole time. But it really hits you in the core when it makes it, it makes you think 
so much there. It it starts to unpack the layers that the two of them were just starting to comb back as far as their own relationship and discussing things with each other. And it really it really hits in a poignant way. But all of it's just dialogue. Yeah. I'll tell you the one that gets me, and it's not only because it's well-directed, well-written, so it's good dialogue, and exceptionally performed by two legends that you've waited to see together. Even though they've been together, they've never been together. You have Robert De Niro and Al Pacino. Now, they've been together in a couple of movies since then, but this was the first one, 1995. Michael Mann wrote and directed Heat. You've got the ultimate good guy and the ultimate bad guy in this movie where you have De Niro. I think he was the bad guy in this one, and Al Pacino's the cop. They've been together in The Godfather, but they're Godfather Part Two, but they're not in any of the same scenes because there's the time gap. So they're and that the only movie they've ever been in at that point together. They've been in a few since, but they were eh. But this one crackled. I mean, crackled. They sit down in this diner. And in a lot of ways, this was the selling point of the movie. Not the big giant epic gun shootout at the end of the movie that is so accurate that they show this in training classes for Marines on how to tactically arm and reload your weapon because Val Kilmer learned it down to a T. That's not the selling point. It's that these two guys, and the scene seems like it takes 10 minutes, but it's probably like three. But these masters of their craft that have always almost seemingly been at odds with one another, but they're good friends in real life. They sit down. There's one's the good guy, one's the bad guy, and they're both just jousting. It's a verbal joust, and you know that the the, the true joust is going to come at the end of the movie. And Michael Mann, stylish, he knows how to make cake with good frosting and good cake. You know, it's not all, he's got the balance right. Uh, if you don't know, Michael Mann was largely behind the scenes of Miami Vice. Got a lot of substance, but very stylish. What a surprise. Oh, and other things too. But getting these two together, sitting down, and if that's all it is, is a verbal joust. You think you're going to take me down? Oh, I'm going to take you downtown to Chinatown. I mean, I'm, I'm using different parts of their careers, I guess, to make that point. But to see it happen, it is a tour de force of a scene that can make the movie. And that's all it is, is two people sitting in a diner booth talking across the table. Wow. Yeah, dialogue, especially when it comes between two people who have a really good rapport with each other can make a scene or make scenes in a movie exceptionally good. That's part of what made the Thomas crown affair in the 1960s stick out to me because you had Norman Jewison directing it with such a stylish flair. But then I, I love the McQueen and Dunaway duo together in there. And some of it is the the witty back and forth that they've got. She's trying to catch him. He's trying to keep her at bay. And yet they are fascinated by each other. Yeah. And you see it with the way that they interact and talk with each other. And then it all sets up for the chess scene where there's not a word spoken in the course of that. It's just music. And yet the visuals play on this growing attraction that they have with each other and that it is just coming to a head in an enormous way and then it does so dialogue can sometimes set up for moments like that where there's no dialogue and yet it speaks volumes i'll give you one last one um this was a tough one for me because this one is is very personal in a lot of ways. It's a Tim Burton movie. It's very Tim Burton-esque, but it's also one of the least Tim Burton-esque movies he ever did called Big Fish, if you've ever seen it. And really what it's about is fathers and sons. And so yeah. you've got Albert Finney, who's the father, 
Also, it's the same role played by Ewan McGregor, Ewan McGregor when he's younger. So they're both saying that, playing the same role at different parts of the story. And you have uh, Billy Kudrup, who's the son. And he just wants to know about his dad, but his dad never just tells a straight story. They're always these long, involved, clearly fantasy-driven yarns. And through the whole run of this, it is... Um, it's it's hard for him to I would just want to know who you are, Dad. Stop hiding. Then at the end of the movie, this this father is dying. And so Billy Kudrup comes home and he's just trying one last try. I want to get to know who you are, Dad, before you really go and it's happening. And for me, it's difficult even to think about, even to talk about, because it's very personal because that's one movie I've only been able to watch once since my dad died, and it brings me back to it. But at the very, very end, he's at the hospital. He's checking up on his dad, and clearly this is the moment. It's coming. And I, what can I get for you? Can I get you water? And the only thing the dad will say is, how does it end? I don't know. You never told me, Dad. And he's, the dad can only speak with his face now. And the son finally realizes he's got to finish this outlandish story. Okay. And so now it cuts to the story that he's telling, how he breaks his dad out of the hospital and we escape and we drop you in the river because he's really just a big fish is all it is. It's all it is the tale. And as he's telling the story, that's when the dad dies. And you go the next scene and you go to the funeral. And all of these people are showing up to these funerals that are part of these stories that this dad has told that were just bizarre. And maybe not as far-fetched a story as his dad had told. The story that he's telling his father combined with finally getting his son on board to just have fun and tell a story. Whether it's true or not, it doesn't matter. Most stories are true and they're not interesting. My stories you'll always remember. And then that pairs so well with the last scene of the movie where all these people are showing up. And it's not so that really was a giant and that really was this. And that that guy really is, he's really here. Those scenes together play off of some such another thing, and so many of you sons and daughters, as you grow up and you start to see your parents as real people, it's such a self-realization moment. It's going to mean one thing when you see it, and then it'll mean a whole other thing when you see it and you've gone through something like this yourself. It will speak volumes. It is one of those movies, I won't lie, it will make me cry. Mm. Pretty special. Yeah, you've talked about Big Fish before in that way, so yeah, that's that's really neat. And I love when scenes have that kind of power to them where it, it takes it takes a build sometimes. It takes working to that point in the movie where you've set the dominoes up to be able to make it fall in such a way that it really does hit home like that. What about on the epic side, dr- the dramatic side, scenes that, that hit home that way? It's We already talked about it. it without doubt, it is the first 20 minutes of, of Saving Private Ryan. When that movie came out, I remember going into the theater and they had little, not only did they have the big poster for the movie right there, but on the bottom of it, um, it was like a message for veterans. And it wasn't, you didn't have to be a World War II vet. You could be a Vietnam vet or an Iraq vet or it didn't matter if you are having a, a, an issue with this movie and you come out and it's just a flashback or too much, here's a number, call it. Yeah. And I remember coming out of the movie or going, I don't remember exactly when it was, but I remember seeing older guys sitting down talking. And the, I mean, cell phones were around in 99, but they're not like they were now. There were some people that were, you could tell, had had a moment. Mm-hmm. And and I, I just wasn't thinking about it. I wasn't getting it. And then the first 20 minutes, I was like, holy, whoa. Yeah. That was the most intense 20 minutes epic or anything that I'd ever seen. And clearly, Saving Private Ryan, I'd qualify as an epic. 
On a more cinematic side, um, I, I do enjoy some epic scenes that are that are very grand or very big that happen too. And sometimes it's it can be something big that has very few people in it, like the final showdown in the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, the okay. final the final battle that takes place there, the final the final gunfight where you've got all three guys circled around and the tension that is building in that moment of who's going to prevail. With, again, set to an amazing score that comes from Ennio Morricone as the three of them are staring each other down. And you start very widespread. You start with this wide angle, and it all then comes down to you see just their eyes. And then it leads into that final shot that comes at the end. Great build, very dramatic with the way that it starts big and then comes small to set up for that dramatic moment in there. I am I'm a big fan of Sam Mendes. And it's it's a movie that is is lost a little love in the last couple of years, but it won Best Picture, and it's American Beauty. It you're either going to like it or you're not going to like it. Really, it's a movie about a guy who's basically in the doldrums in life, but finds himself. And the movie speaks to me in a lot of ways. But not only is it just beautifully made, um, but even I was going through a funk at the time. Not the same as the Kevin Spacey character in the movie, but you know a different kind of funk. But the 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 message I got is never too late to get it back when you realize you've lost something, you know, something about yourself, and that's really what the movie to me is about. But there, it takes a couple of twists and turns, and people have watched it since. And it's one of those; it's on the top of the list for a lot of people. What movie won an Oscar that probably shouldn't have? For me, I think it's absolutely worthy of it. But it depends on your perspective, and that's totally fair. But the movie also dabbles, kind of like Big Fish, in that it is based in reality, but it's also based in fantasy in ways. And some of the ways, not just because Sam Mendes directed it, but some of the people that he was involved, you know, Conrad Hall as as part of the cinematography team, the way that things were lit, the, the way that things were done, the way that they were just orchestrated together, and the way that they were shot to do that. And there's versions of this throughout the movie, about various movies that they've done. There's the shootout at the end of Road to Perdition, same crew. Uh, where it's all done in the rain and bullets are flying and everyone's left dead except for Paul Newman. There's a shot of that where they're robbing the banks and uh, earlier in that movie in Road to Perdition. But there's a shot at the end of the movie where you know that somebody just killed Kevin Spacey's character. Well, who is it? Who could it have been? And the way they set up these camera shots, everything is moving as the camera's panning and it's sliding. And all these various different shots were all shot with the panning at the same speed, same mood, same tempo. And they all feed into one another. And in addition to that, it also tells you, well, it wasn't this person and it wasn't this person until finally you see who it was. But they're also interspersed with beautiful things as Kevin Spacey's looking back at his life. I remember my grandmother's hands and how they seemed like paper. And it's just beautifully scanning by. And then you get a shot of the wife realizing that her husband, even though they're about to split up, that he's really, really, truly gone. And just the way that it was shot, it is so grand. It is so beautiful. It is so delicate yet heavy. Um, and Thomas Newman's score. It's just, it's some of the masters of their craft showing off in one of those moments, let's have a high point. You do the best you can do. You do the best you can do and the best you can do. And we're going to put this and make one hell of a cake. And it's just one of those moments where the ever the cinematography, the acting, the music, the directing, the lighting, it's all there. And it just grabs you. Just the beauty of it, regardless of what the scene is about. And then there's that too. It's just, it's marvelous. You know, the shame of, of talking about this topic is that, A, we are just about out of time for, for what we have for our window to record today. And, B, 
I feel like Dave, we could we could do a scenes part two. We could do a scenes part three because we've we've barely even scratched the surface on great. That's that's what's so cool though. A lot of our favorite movies hit us because there are unforgettable scenes that are in there. They may be funny. They may be grand. They may be very serious. They may be on an extremely small scale. They may they may be one shot. They may be cutting back and forth going between two people as they're conversing. They may be dialogue heavy. There may be no dialogue. That's what is amazing about talking about these great scenes is that they there may be music. There often is music. There may not be, though, and sometimes that's part of what makes it so unforgettable. And that's what's cool. It may be the beginning of the movie, the middle, the end. It, that's part of what makes this so cool is that those unforgettable scenes, you got to cling on to them. And that feeling, I love that you brought up that that tingle, that that chill, tingle that moment. sensation of this This is so cool what I'm watching it's right now. It's crossed a barrier that I can't control it. Oh, it just tingles now. That's right. That I, Those moments are worth savoring, especially when you watch a movie for a first time and you watch a scene that hits you that way. Like, I love at the end of I, – I, I told you about how I discovered um, my favorite year this past mm-hmm. year. And that's what I love about that last scene where Alan Swan is taking the applause of the crowd and stuff. You realize in that moment it's a great moment not just for him in terms of like in front of everybody, but there's this this kind of realization moment that's happened for him too. And it all comes together in that moment. And, and you watch it for the first time and you're like – that's great. Yeah. It just puts a smile on your face or it hits you in a certain way. When you get that feeling with a certain scene, don't forget it. It's fun when you have that for a first time watching a movie. See, not only will Hoove and I potentially do a sequel to this, this is one of those things where I'll get a phone call randomly. Ooh, what's going on? All right. And he won't even say hello. He'll just jump right in. Okay, so there's the movie, the thing, and they do the thing with the guy. And then a week later, Hoove will be just finishing up a game, packing it up and stuff, ready to come. Hey, Dave, I was just packing up the game. What's up? Okay, so in the movie, with and off we'll go. That's how this episode is going to continue. Random phone calls and texts between Hoove and I, culminating in part two. And maybe you and your friends as well, if you're listening as well. Great scenes, boy, they they some they don't always make a great movie, but a great movie often does have at least one, if not multiple, tremendous scenes that are part of it. Here's a comforting but scary thought. Some movies, all they are is one really good scene. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. What about the rest of the movie? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, boy. Well, you savor the scene at the very least. <laughs> Rick and Nick Talk Flicks is sponsored by the Bemidji Theater on Highway 2 just down from the airport. Yeah, this was an episode a long time coming. It's fun to talk scenes and unpack that a little bit. This is one of those, who, we're going to do one about your favorite movie scenes. Oh, 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 that, and that was off and running. Exactly. So until next time, I'm Joel Hoover. I'm Dave Brooks. And we will see you at the movies.